in, friends. Uh, welcome back to Shit That Scares Me. I am Teresa, and I'm so excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking about my hometown, Rochester, New York, and our famous ghost, the Lady in White. She also goes by the White Lady or the Lady in the Lake. I'm going to tell you about this legend and where it originated, and also debunk some of the oft-repeated myths about her. Uh, I want to add a trigger warning here. This story touches on some disturbing topics like sexual assault and suicide. Uh, if you find these topics triggering, please, please do not listen to this episode. Um, you know, these are serious things that affect so many people, and I'm never going to make light of it, but uh, it also can be really triggering for people. So if that's you, stop listening right now. So a little bit of background about Rochester and about um, the area where the lady uh, can be supposedly found. Um, Rochester, New York is in western New York State, about 60 miles east of the city of Buffalo. And it's right on the shores of Lake Ontario. Um, if you've never heard of Lake Ontario, um, that's a shame because it's great. One of the Great Lakes. Ha <laughs> ha jokes. Um, it's a relatively small city, but there are a, a bunch of colleges, some of the top rated schools in the country, like the University of Rochester um, is a, a big time medical school. Uh, there's also Rochester Institute of Technology, which is right up there with MIT as far as uh, tech schools. I mean, it's not quite as good as MIT, but it is definitely very highly rated, uh, especially for their engineering programs. There's also a school for the deaf called the, um, it's NTID. I don't remember what it stands for, but that's it at the, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology too. In addition to, uh, good education and good schools, there is also a thriving art and local music scene. Um, or at least there was before COVID. Uh, we're not sure how that's going to pan out after uh, the pandemic if life goes back to normal. Rochester is consistently ranked among the top places to live in the U.S. Like if you look at those quality of life um, rankings on like U.S. news and world reports, uh, Rochester is always really highly, highly ranked. So it's a great place to live. It's a, it's also really highly ranked by the human rights campaign for, uh, LGBTQ plus people. Um, there's a, a vibrant gay scene. Weirdly, for my LGBTQ friends, um, Rochester has the Pride celebration in July because the city is so close to New York City and also Toronto, and they don't want to compete with bigger Pride celebrations, so they just moved theirs to July. Brilliant. But, you know, this is my home city, and I may be biased, but it's a great place. The White Lady haunts a park in a small suburb of Rochester called Arondequoit. Um, this park, Durand Eastman Park, uh, is north of the actual city, uh, directly on the shores of Lake Ontario. Uh, and Durand Eastman Park has a really interesting history, too. It's named after uh, the two men who donated the land, uh, Henry S. Durand and George Eastman. Um, Henry S. Durand is 
was obviously uh, a Harvard and Yale educated doctor uh, who practiced in Rochester. He also cared for the wounded during the Mexican Revolution. Um, and he spent the last years of his life recovering from an illness that he contracted while doing that. Uh, he was in California and out west for years uh, recovering from this disease. So while he spent the last years of his life in California and living abroad, he's buried in Rochester in um, Mount Hope Cemetery, which is another really fascinating part of Rochester. It's a um, Victorian cemetery in like the classic Victorian cemetery style, and it was designed by um, Frederick Law Olmsted, who also designed Central Park. It's a beautiful cemetery. I'll do an episode about it eventually, but, um, but this doctor, his biggest claim to fame is helping to write Yale's unofficial school song, Bright College Years. Um, I have never heard this song and this is like news to me, but people who went to Yale or who know a lot about Yale apparently know who this guy is and he's, uh, super famous in certain circles. The other individual who donated this land uh, is George Eastman. Um, if you've never heard of George Eastman, you've most likely heard of his company. He founded Eastman Kodak. Eastman Kodak has been huge all over the world for over a century. Um, obviously, they started out in photography, uh, but they also... Um, they make film for movies. They have made cameras for a century. Uh, and actually, George Eastman developed the first roll camera, which brought photography to the masses. Before that, photos were taken on um, plates and photography equipment was huge and bulky um, until George Eastman invented his brownie camera that was super portable and you know, people could take it on vacation and take it to parks and on picnics and whatever. So without George Eastman, we may not have cameras in our pockets, which is interesting to think of. He was also a philanthropist and a eugenicist. That's a weird combination of things to be, but it is what it is at the turn of the century, apparently. That was a uh, being a eugenicist was a thing that a lot of upper class people were, unfortunately. Um, he also struggled with depression for most of his life, and uh, in his later years, he got really sick. Most likely, it was some kind of degenerative uh, disc disease in his spine, but it severely limited his mobility and his mental health. Uh, declined rapidly after he got sick and was uh, able to do less. So he died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the heart uh, in his home. And like I said, I don't want to make light of it, but this man left what is ostensibly the most practical uh, suicide note ever. Um, it read, to my friends, my work is done. Why wait? Now, his home in Rochester is a rather large mansion with beautiful gardens and grounds, and it's now a museum. It's uh, a movie museum. They, like, do restoration work on old films. Um, there's a movie theater there where you can go and watch these old films that have been restored, but it's also a museum of George Eastman's life. 
And they have a lot of events there. And one of my favorites is uh, the Halloween event that they've had for years that's a masquerade. And, you know, you get dressed up in fancy clothes and you put on masks and you drink and wander around George Eastman's house and they um, do like some old school photography tricks to create images of ghosts on walls. And it's it's really cool. But one of the things that they bring out for display uh, for these events is the his suicide note and the chair where he died. You know, macabre and grisly, but fitting with the theme of Halloween. So anyways, back to the park. Um, Durand and Eastman both had what at the time were called summer camps in this area of Aronquite. And when I say summer camps, I don't mean like a bunch of kids hanging out in bunk beds and, and like what we think of now as summer camps. They were just slightly smaller mansions um, that happened to be near a lake to, um, you know, take advantage of the cooler weather by the lake in the summer because it was very, very hot. Um, Western New York, the weather is, is miserable for about half the year. Um, but during the summer, it can get, you know, up into the mid-90s uh, Fahrenheit. So it gets really hot. So that's what the point of these summer camps were. They weren't hanging out with a bunch of kids. They were just hanging out in slightly smaller mansions. They These houses also had, like, sleeping porches and extra windows for breezes and, and whatever. But um, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, Durand and Eastman decided that the this area was so pretty, they wanted the public to be able to enjoy it as much as they did. So they began to buy up all the farms surrounding their camps. And in 1907, they donated it to the city of Rochester uh, with the intention of creating a park. Before that could happen, uh, the city had to do a bunch of work because the farmland was like really swampy and there weren't many trees. So they had to move um, a lot of earth and plant trees and and create more functional spaces before this park could open. But it took, I think, two years and the park was opened in 1909. So it's at this point that it gets a little bit more difficult to separate what is fact and what is fiction. Um, there are many, many different versions of the white lady story, but much like other white ladies uh, in other cultures and other countries, they all involve a sad woman. In one version of this story, uh, in the early 1800s, there was a farmer and his wife living in this area. And the wife uh, caught the farmer um, being unfaithful. And in a jealous rage, uh, his wife murdered both he and his lover. And of course, was uh, caught and, I believe, sentenced to death. Uh, and now her vengeful spirit uh, haunts the area where this event took place. And she's looking to recreate the crime with new victims. In a different version of the story, uh, the 
woman is a young wife waiting for her husband to return from a war or um, um, some kind of military posting or like a general, it's like a general sailor thing. But uh, he was a sailor and she was waiting for him to come home. And every day she would walk the shores of the lake uh, looking for his ship. But, you know, time went on and he never came back. Uh, And she spent her entire life every single day walking the beach looking for a ship that never came until she died of a broken heart. That story is less common. Uh, I didn't hear that until I was an adult. Um, But that is also really common for this area because of the lake. Um, Lake Ontario leads to like the St. Lawrence Seaway and it was a a big uh, port and like during the war of 1812 it was really important and and so shipping was a big deal so this story makes sense too. Um, The most common versions of the story include some combination of the sad woman and her daughter. In one um the woman lives alone with her teenage daughter and she's super overprotective and doesn't let her daughter go anywhere or see anyone or talk to anyone, doesn't let her go to school, just keeps her basically under lock and key all the time. But the daughter is allowed to go for walks down by the lake by herself. So one night, uh, the daughter goes out for a walk and she never returns. The element of the missing daughter is common with these stories, too. Um, So in one version of the story, the daughter runs away with a boy from town. They're in love and they never are seen or heard from again. In a different version, a group of men sets upon the daughter, um, sexually assaults her, kills her and tosses her body in the lake. In a different version, the daughter goes for a swim and is taken by the undertow and drowns. Um, Like I said, lots of different versions of the story. Um, There's also versions of the story where the mother and daughter, um, like, don't live alone, aren't hermits. They're, like, you know, parts of the community. Um, But ultimately, in every version the daughter ends up disappearing. After the daughter disappears or is killed, uh, the mother is obviously heartbroken and spends the rest of her time um, on this planet searching the beach, looking for any trace of her daughter. Uh, But they never find a body, uh, no clues, nothing. The daughter never comes home. Um, Some say that the woman... Uh, died of a broken heart. Some say she committed suicide. Some say that she uh, had two giant black dogs that she took with her on these investigation trips. Um, And that when she committed suicide, she also killed the dogs to make sure that she had them in the afterlife. These elements are, are common through this story. But the bottom line is, uh, nobody, no trace of the, the girl ever was found, and the woman eventually ultimately died. So, where did this haunting come from? Well, nobody actually knows for sure when it started or when the stories even began. 
a common element of the haunting stories is that the lady in white does not like men, which makes sense given that, you know, a man or a group of men took away her daughter. Um, you know, I wouldn't like men either if that was my experience. Um, it's said that the lady in white will target men if she comes upon them and, and be particularly hostile and vicious towards them and chase them out of the park. Now, this is a very large park and it takes like, it's very, like the road to the park is very windy. So to chase somebody out of the park, you have to be chasing them for a while um, unless they, you're chasing them to their car and making sure that they drive out of the park. But, um, so as far as where she comes from, where she materializes, people say that she rises out of the mist on the lake. Some people say that she comes out of nowhere, wandering down the road. Men who drive through the park at night might see her in the middle of the road and will stop because they think they're going to hit her or they stop to offer help or see if she's okay. And at that point, she turns on them and chases them away. And every kid growing up in Rochester knows this story. It's something that we learn from a young age. Everybody knows about the lady in white or the white lady. Um, and we also know all about the white lady's castle. Um, now the castle is in a, a back part of the park, but it looks like the ruins of a medieval castle. It's all stone and there's stairs um, going up to it from the road. Uh, and it's very easy to see how it got the nickname, the White Lady's Castle. Teenagers for generations have gone to the castle in the summer to hang out and drink beer and just um, generally be idiots and, um, you, you know, wait for the White Lady. This area has also been used as sort of like a lover's lane. Like if Rochester has any lover's lane, it's Durand Eastman Park because it's it's dark and it's generally deserted. And supposedly the white lady will put a stop to any illicit canoodling um, by making noise or wailing, um, luring the couple or even just the man out of the car and then will chase them away um, or get them away from their partner. And this is where the big black dogs come back into the story because many people who have been um, parked at Duran Eastman Park have said that um, they're chased back to their cars or they're chased out of the park by huge black dogs. Now, I was not immune from this rite of passage um, going to the white lady's castle and hanging out and drinking beer and daring my friends to wander off into the dark alone. But I never actually saw anything. And I was generally with a, a mixed group of people, um, girls and boys, but nothing ever happened. We never heard anything other than coyotes. Uh, cause it is like a wooded area. There are animals, but, uh, you know, nothing ever happened. Um, it was really just us scaring ourselves and uh, trying to prove to all the other kids that we were the bravest. This legend is so pervasive in the Rochester area that a local filmmaker made a movie about it. Uh, it was released in 1988 and it's called The Lady in White. 
Uh, it's starring Lucas Haas and Catherine Helmand. Um, you know, two very 80s celebrities. I was about, I think, six, five or six when it came out. And, um, you know, really inappropriate movie for a five or six year old because it does deal with like child abuse, pedophilia. But of course, I saw it and loved it. And it's still one of my favorite movies. Uh, and it still mostly holds up, but it is very 80s. There are some special effects that look very weird um, because, you know, CG didn't <laughs> exist back then. And it was a low budget sort of indie movie. So, and a lot of it was filmed uh, near Rochester, too. I had a teacher in elementary school who was an extra. So, um, very low budget. And it's funny that I decided to do this episode this week because we uh, just reached the fourth anniversary of one of the biggest windstorms in Rochester in a long time. And for clarification, uh, when I say windstorm, I'm talking winds like 60, 70 mile an hour winds. And these are really common in upstate New York in the... um, in the spring and actually in the fall too. Anytime the weather is going from warm to cold or cold to warm, uh, we get these huge windstorms. Um, we just had one uh, last weekend, actually. Um, but this particular particular windstorm in March 2017 uh, hit Rochester, and a tree in Arondequoit made the news because. The, it had cracked in such a way that the like exposed white part of the tree looked like the white lady. This was like front page news for all the local news stations and the local papers because people were convinced that it was like some kind of sign and uh, it was like the return of the white lady. And if you, I'll put pictures of this on Instagram uh, so that you can see exactly what they're talking about. But it looks like, sort of looks like a woman um, in a dress and you can sort of see a skeletal face. But um, my Instagram link is in the show notes. Go look at Instagram. Tell me what you think of this tree. If you can see a woman, I really want to know what you think. Because um, I, I can kind of see it. And like, if I was on a dark road at night and drove by this, it would scare the hell out of me. But just like in the cold light of day, I don't think that I would be that scared of it or that I would like call, <laughs> call news stations about it. So what is the truth about the lady in white? Nobody really knows. Um, but there are historians in the town of Arondequoit who get asked about this every Halloween without fail. And that, again, ends up in the local paper and all over the local news. But um, there's actually no historical evidence to suggest that a farmer's wife in this area committed any violent acts or retaliated in any way for any kind of adultery. There also isn't any evidence of a woman living in this area losing a daughter or even living alone with a daughter or losing a daughter in any of the ways that uh, take place in these stories. Um, so as far as we know, this woman never existed. Uh, her daughter never existed. 
her husband never existed. Um, but the, the town historians will also say that they don't want to come right out and say she never existed because they don't really want to be haunted. Um, it's sort of a local joke. So what about the White Lady's Castle? This is a structure that very much exists. Uh, and it's been there for as long as anybody can remember. Turns out it's actually the ruins of a refectory um, that was torn down during the Depression. And a refectory is like sort of like a cafeteria or like a cafe. Um, it was run by one of the local, the local hotels uh, because this was like a really big built up summer area back in the day. And um, it was frequented by thousands of people from all over the state and they needed places to eat. Um, so one of the local hotels built this big refectory that was up off of um, the beach on one of these hills and they would serve like ice cream and snacks and you could go in there and hang out and get out of the sun for a bit and have a snack and, and whatever. And it, it was for the visitors at the beach and members of the public. Uh, they didn't have to be guests at the hotel to be able to go in and eat at this refectory. It stood until the Great Depression. I think it was in the early 30s. Um, there was a fire at this building and because of the depression and how much it would cost to rebuild and the lack of like people with disposable income to go to the beach and buy treats. They just decided not to rebuild it. They decided it would be more cost effective to tear it down. So they tore down like the building structure, but they left all of the stonework and the stairs and like the foundation um, because that's all solid. It was not damaged by the fire. So they just kind of left it there. So these bits of this old building have been left there since 1930 or 31. And over time, it's just sort of become the location that's most closely associated with the white lady. So that's it. That's the whole story. If you're from Rochester or you've been to Rochester, uh, we hold this legend very close to our hearts. Um, it's one of my favorite stories, if only because there are so many white lady stories. It's sort of like uh, a, a genre of haunted story. And I kind of like that Rochester has our own. Um, you know, you, you hear about stories like this all the time, like La Llorona is another take on the white lady story. Uh, so it's like a little bit of personal pride that we have our own white lady story. So that's it for me. Just a, a quick and dirty little story. Do you have your own white lady where you live? I would love to know. Uh, you will find my um, all of my social media handles in the show notes and uh, stop by, see the random tree. I'm also going to post some photos of uh, what's left of the White Lady's Castle. Uh, so go check it out. And uh, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this little story, uh, feel free to 
uh, rate and review. I'm on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, basically everywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, send me an email. My email address will be in the show notes as well. I would love to hear from you and have a great week. 